I'm gonna scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. Oh, you done it now, Jordy Barrel. You monkhead. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and comfort you and lift you up and give you peace. Go ahead, Brian. I am listening. For what? 30 seconds? I'll wait, too. Welcome to the Boys Who Would Be Critics. This week we're breaking down the remake of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, and we're following it up by playing a game of King of the Hill where we're taking five of Stephen King's more obscure adaptations, and we will be knocking them off one by one to finally proclaim a winner. Uh, Damoon and I are here, as always, to talk, talk about all this, but we're joined by a special guest this week. It is Jay Clark, a programmer for Saskatoon, uh, Saskatoon Fantastic Film Festival, Hexploitation Film Festival, Toronto Smartphone Film, uh, Film Festival, Little Terror Short Film Series, and there is one more mystery festival that is of significant note that I am not allowed to talk about. But we are very glad to uh, glad to have you on the pod, Jay. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so I want to just before we even get into the movies, I want to ask about the uh, the life and work of film programming. How did you get into that? Um, well, I think just uh, sort of fell into it. I'm a filmmaker as well. I've made several shorts over the years, and uh, you know, going to festivals and stuff, and and seeing other people's shorts and meeting people and. And uh, just seeing a lot of shorts, really, and then just sort of falling into it. You know, people that I know are also programmers just came to be like, hey, uh, we're swamped. Do you want to help? Because, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know, you know about shorts and whatnot. And I guess just sort of balloons from there because you're, you're watching shorts and then you talk to other people and you're like, oh, you, you program for this? Well, we could use some help for this. And then, you know, and then next thing you know, you're watching a thousand shorts a year. Is that about the number? I was just going to ask. At this point, I'd say probably, yeah. How yeah. long is the is, are the watching sessions for yourself? Do you break them up into chunks? Yeah, I break them up into chunks. Usually uh, uh, three or four hours at a time is a good clip, um, depending on the length of shorts, which varies from like, you know, a couple of minutes to like, unfortunately, at some points, like 45 minutes. Wow, okay. Um, you know, you can you can be looking at a list and it's like, wow, I've been here for like four hours and I've only watched like six shorts. That sucks. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it, it varies, but I, I think I have a unusually high stamina for it. So it, I don't usually find it too daunting. I don't burn out usually. Do you train for it? Like are there a Rocky montage to train for watching these sort of films? <laughs> no, it would be really with... nice if it was, but there is not. No, you don't start with watching the Rose Red miniseries without any breaks and then bro, the storm of the century. No, right into it, kick. Eh? no, just right into it. Do you like, do you have overlaps with festivals? I mean, like sometimes you have the same film that's been submitted to different Oh festivals? yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. I like to, I like to, uh. To carry over um, ones that uh, from from festival to festival, um, one maybe ones that don't get played for for some reason at one festival and earmark it for another one. Yeah, but do they get submitted? Like, let's say you get the same film submitted to two or three different festivals. Oh yeah, for Apple. sure. There there are people who just sort of seem to have endless amounts of money that can just sort of blanket <laughs> the, the, all the, the genre festivals. <laughs> of, and you just keep seeing the same same shorts, and you're like, huh, these guys have deep pockets, apparently. <laughs> That'd be like a short film right there. Like, some, like, programmer gets the same short, like, submitted to him, but it's just slightly off each time, <laughs> and it becomes weirdly personalized to him, and it gets, like, really uncomfortable and spooky. 
Well, it'd be funny if it, that short actually shows up six months from now. <laughs> yeah. Someone's listening <laughs> to this podcast right now. Right now. Yeah. So what a great idea. The programmer. Do you, want, do you wind up watching it multiple times then, or do you just go like, no, I've seen this already, and... I mean, I I probably will, uh, you know, maybe fast forward through it. Yeah. Um, if I if I remember, uh, it depends on whether I like it or not, for sure. <laughs> I guess can I? Let me ask. Well, I would love to ask one more question about the programming world. Uh, yeah. Just because, you know, as someone who submitted to genre festivals or submitted to other various film festivals for short films. Yeah. Are there? I mean, you never really see what the competition is. You see what gets programmed. What are, are there generally like a series of tiers of quality where you just go like twenty five percent of this is. Yes. really not up to any par and then there's how does that normally break down well like i say it depends on the festival um but yeah the, ma- the majority i'd say at least 50 percent of it is not good mm-hmm. not strong let's put it more diplomatically and um and then it goes up from there i i like usually i'd say um 10 to 15 percent is of a quality that i would be like yes let's program this and then you have to weed weed it down from there because obviously that's right a number that's way more than you'd actually be able to play i think from from doing it you know for three or four years in a row now i'd say that's a good percentage of of good quality shorts so when you're getting your rejection emails and festivals are usually bragging about how they've had their record submissions and all in the thousands of copies what they really should be mentioning is you know we we received a total of like 50 to 100 quality shorts. <laughs> and really, they should just have a little PS if yours is in that 100. But right outside of that, you're not really... You're, the field doesn't matter. Well, people are going to make shorts, right? Yeah. So, you know, and, and I mean, there's people who, you know, don't succeed the first time, and then they... Even myself. I mean, oh, absolutely. My first short I made uh, didn't play anywhere. Um but, uh, you know, it, I got better as I went along, right? So I mean, Jay Clark has rejected me two times. Ooh, for which festivals and which, which shorts? Uh, Standby, Saskatoon. Okay. And I think Exploitation as well. Or maybe I, think that's, I, think that, I think you submitted, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah. I, I never rejected yeah. Mythplaced. I never submitted to either, though. Okay. <laughs> sure is. Sorry? Just curious. Yeah, so thanks, Jay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. After the <laughs> grilling and interrogation... Should we jump into Pet Cemetery? You know, we're gonna reanimate and revive this. Bring its stinking carcass back. If your uh, if your viewers, your listeners are still here after that uh, wonderful rousing explanation of short film programming. Oh, they're used to having such rousing conversations of all right of equal levels of engagement. It's really what we aim for. And we're all I was on par then. I apologize because I was really trying to look up the uh, the directors of Pet Cemetery really quickly so I could try and create a nice segue off of some of their early short films. One of them was uh, listed on IMDb as Identical Dead Sisters short. So, uh, segueing from programming shorts, this is these filmmakers may or may not have submitted to Jay Clark at one point in their... Uh, 2009. 2009, no. I don't think God, so. God, but... no. All right, never mind. Well, they did... Okay, what they're known for... They, have you seen Starry Eyes? Yes. Jay Clark, have you seen Starry Eyes? Yes, and I didn't realize until just now. No, that they did Starry Eyes. So, the big thing before this, they did Starry Eyes, which was Starry Eyes... I'm kind of upset now that they didn't find a place to put Noah Segan in Pet Cemetery now. Pull up that guy. Okay. Anyways, that was an aside. Anyway, our two filmmakers, all, all that matters is they have started in shorts, they have moved their way up to features, and now they have what is almost a forgotten genre in film, which is the mid-budget uh, release with essentially cast exclusively with character actors. Uh, no disrespect to uh, Jason Clark, but no one of like 
exceptionally high good looks. There's no, he's not the Matthew McConaughey. He's the guy who plays the dude Matthew McConaughey has to throw in and get eaten by a shark. It's the type of role that like William Hurt or like Richard Dreyfuss would have gotten, or like nowadays two actors, either Jason Clark or Patrick Wilson got. And Patrick Wilson was a little more, a little, a little handsome. Just, just I know, but they like those like those mid-age dad roles are kind of like they have got that, Patrick Wilson has a dad body, kind of the dad look because like he's he's almost kind of that dad. He's he's kind of like that dad look in um in The Conjuring. He's kind of plays like that dad kind of character, right? They tried to make Ryan Reynolds that character in the Amateur of a little horror remake, and it kind of didn't work didn't whatsoever work. Too, at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like those roles that are especially when they yeah. have him like chopping wood shirtless. Or <laughs> yeah, because he's a dad body from like Blade Trinity. So. Yeah. So I mean, it's one of those things where like I call it the William Hurt principle where like those roles don't exist anymore for those actors they they were the good meaty thing that can be like the big chill or accidental tourist or kippendorf tribe or things like this the middle-aged dad roles they don't they don't seem to permeate anymore in culture because we've either really young films or like middle-aged really attractive kind of superhero world right it's nothing like the average joe so was jason clark and meg Uh, no 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 no. he's in the uh he was in the uh the Matthew McConaughey film where Anne Hathaway plays a femme fatale. I'm forgetting what the oh. name of this film is. Seren- no, Serenity. Serenity. It's, an, it's a film that came out earlier this year. I haven't seen it yet. but it, it's it, thrown it, to a shark? The plot line of Serenity, <laughs> before we even get into the plot line of Pet, <laughs> Pet Cemetery, is Matthew McConaughey Sorry, plays like a drifter off in Hawaii on a boat, and an, I think he's like a, you know, a grizzled war vet, spends all his time out fishing, and Anne Hathaway plays a, like, femme fatale type of woman of mystery who has a past with Matthew McConaughey calls him out and or reestablishes contact and says like I really want to get rid of my abusive husband can you take him out for a night on the water and kill him and Jason Clark plays said abusive husband see it's funny you said Matthew McConaughey but in my brain I heard Jason Statham for some reason so I was thinking <laughs> then shark and I'm like wait a minute maybe it was the shark I don't know sorry for that weird no, aside okay. Jason Clark I just well, it's funny to see my name up in lights every time he's in something, but yeah. mm-hmm. um, he uh, just strikes me as a character actor, like who's been getting a lot of like you know. He's been roles. getting a good run, yeah. All I know him again from is that last Terminator movie where he played uh, John Connor. And he's also robot. like in the Planet of the Apes movies too, right? That's yeah. right. But I don't. No one thinks about the humans in the Planet of the Apes films. I forget, oh, yeah, like, no. I forget like James Franco and Gary. Like Olden he's been a lot of like, stuff. Like yeah. he's like the guy in uh, Jessica Chastain's like yeah. partner in Zero Dark Thirty and. Just yeah, like yeah, a, yeah, just yeah. a whole bunch of, yeah. of course, I notice him because it's like, yeah. oh, he's one of the astronauts and, yeah. um, or I think one of the astronauts dies in First Man. Mm. And? I think so, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. what's important but is... it's like, I notice it because it's like, oh, Jason Clark's in this movie. That's a, that's a question I've always had with people because I have a very unique name, right? right? Like, I will never hear it. So I've always asked people, like, if a person in a film has an identical name to you, do your ears perk up? Is it, like, just a first name? Would it be enough? Or for your case, it's both first and last name. Like, Brendan, when you see a character named Brendan in a film or Brendan as an actor, does anything, like, kind of perk up in your ears at all? Or Yeah, when I was 12. Not anymore. No. I mean, I like, know, Brendan, Brendan Fraser's kind of faded, so... Oh, yeah, Brendan Fraser. But, like, for a time, yeah. I... I like George of the Jungle, and that was cool that his name was Brendan. <laughs> He's pretty crazy. I didn't realize that. No, it's Brendan. Brendan Jones, but that's the oh, first okay. name, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. That would have been really yeah. crazy. Another dad actor good one, uh, Craig T. Nelson. Who also, like, you don't have the kind of role anymore from Poltergeist and The Incredibles. Right. Like, these roles that don't exist. And I got, like, two actors or kind of like... played the villain in Action Jacks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is important about Jay Clark is, in Pet Cemetery, he plays a dad who was, who was also a doctor who has moved his family out to a rural, small town 
in, I want to say, northern Maine. I guess all of Maine is northern. Was it Maine? I did not notice. It's Maine. I think it was Ludlow. It's Maine. Ludlow. No, I was making a joke because, like, everyone literally wears giant Maine shirts. Yeah, it was much like... as a Maine sweater. <laughs> yeah. at one point. It was very obvious that it was Maine. It's Maine. Most of Stephen King is Maine. Yeah. But anyways, they move up to Maine. They find out in their back, uh, in the back distant part of the property, there is a very creepy pet cemetery where children will put on animal masks to bury their, to bury their, uh, lost pets. And, uh... What we learn later on in the film is that there is, if you go even further back in the woods, there is another cemetery that is made with sour, that is on sour earth that seems to be haunted by some kind of spirit or force that can bring things back from the dead. But like in all genre and horror fantasy, when things come back from the dead, they don't come back right. And this will become a problem for poor daddy Jason Clark as tragedy slowly starts to befall first his family's pet and then other members of the family. Uh... Most of this, I think, should be familiar at this point, even if you've never seen or read Pet Cemetery, I think the plot is pretty, has pretty much permeated the culture. But uh, either or, going in with all this backdrop, as I assume all of us were familiar with the source material or the original film, I'll uh, jump it off to you, Jay, at the first. What were your thoughts on uh, the 2019 remake of Stephen King's book from what I think is like late 70s? Uh, no, I think it was the 80s by the time it came out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think... Because okay. I had a... Because um, I did it. I, I read Pet Cemetery, um for a grade 8 book report. All right. And uh, I always I tell this story all the time about, like, how I got Doc's marks because the teacher thought I spelled Pet Cemetery wrong. <laughs> Which is funny because the kid mentions it yeah. in the movie. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes. Um, Mrs. McKay, if you're out there, go yourself <laughs> but yeah i did like the movie um quite a bit i think i probably would not have seen it if i wasn't you know if i didn't know i was coming on this podcast just for the fact that i was very annoyed by the ad campaign now, i don't know how spoilery we're intended to get in this no, podcast can, we usually just spoil everything we'll just by the end of it <laughs> and then now you can say whatever you want because yeah basically the first trailer i was like oh this looks interesting and then the last trailer that they did they basically did show that the twist was that the the daughter gets killed instead of the uh, son and i'm like that is so stupid i mean wouldn't it be great if you were in a theater and you organically discovered that right and they yeah. even shoot it in a way where it's like oh we're not going this way we're going this way yeah and i just found that so annoying that you felt that you had to just spoil that just to get people in the theater now a friend of mine i was talking to my friend about this uh, a couple of days ago and he was like the actual directors were like they fought against that, and it was the producers who were like, "No, people want to know where they're getting into." And I'm like, "It's Pet Cemetery. Like everybody knows what they're already getting into." So I felt really annoyed by that, where I wasn't interested at all again. But so I went and I saw it, and I actually did, I did like it quite a bit. Um, I appreciated that they basically completely changed the last act. Um, I thought that was kind of cool, and uh, I liked. I thought that the the performances were really really strong, like across the board, including the cat, which was the cat was creepy, awesome, and it also looked like the cat that was on the original book cover, which is a nice mm -hmm. nod. So, um, yeah, they what three cats for this film? Four, I think. Yeah, because they had ones that do different things, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I uh, I like that um, a lot, and uh, yeah. So overall, I thought it was it was pretty good. Like uh, you know. Uh, my actual sense of it being changed was was what I ended up actually um, 
making it stand out because I remember like the first half of the movie I'm just sort of I'm just sort of watching it because it's like everything's sort of happening the same yeah and then it was like when it sort of takes a right turn I'm like oh this actually kind of makes it interesting because I don't knowing I know where it's gonna go and it's actually like it ends the ending is actually more dour than than the original which is kind of surprising to yeah me that, that uh, a Hollywood film would actually do that so well we're kind of entering a very nihilistic age with horror films because hereditary and pretty dour there's a twist in right. uh, us which kind of can be read more than nihilistic twist with like the reveal now this so I think right. it's people are more expecting less of a happy we don't live in a happy ending world right now right. so I mean, Rich, yeah That's Richard fair. Attenborough's new planet earth is just him yelling at the audience for ruining the planet he's just some like if you heard that story, they're just yeah. like grizzly and pessimistic, like, you idiots, you've destroyed everything. It was our one planet. It's just basically passive-aggressive. Oh, yeah, we live in a world where we're just passive, either we're passive-aggressive at another, or we're just mad, or we're just sad. So horror movies taking this turn kind of makes sense. A horror movie now with a happy ending is kind of a rare and rare thing to find. I guess it goes here. in cycles, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. But what were your thoughts on it, Benjamin? Or my thoughts on Pet Cemetery? Yeah. Uh, let's start with the positives. The uh, cat was good. I liked the kid actor, Ellie. I don't know, I remember her name, but she was solid. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side, John Lithgow was really phoning it into me. <laughs> the original Judd was so much better. Fred Gwynn killed it. And in this one, he does like he was going through the motion, gets his check so he can afford his beach house. Michael Caine likes to do. Speaking of sharks, um, and then yeah, I just found this film to be very. Need, I'm needlessly edgy and smarter than it was actually like trying to be smarter than it actually was nothing visually inventive in terms of the cinematic language at all between his camera choices it's cinematography it's editing it's terrible like green screen trees in one scene it Wait, just what? that one scene when they go up and it was so obvious in the theater then they're first burying the cat and you have the background of the trees it looked like such a fake composited backdrop that other people were noticing it as well when I went back to look at like talk online about it it looked so fake and so bad and it was one of those films where it just, yeah, it's, it has the same budget, if not a little more than us. And I have no idea how a film like this got made for $20 million because it does not look like $20 million. There's nothing imaginative in terms of its camera angles, its shot, its cinematography. It just felt, well, dead to me. And I was kind of really annoyed at large swaths of it watching it. And the worst part, the sin about making a movie to bring people back and animals from the dead, fundamentally, is that something like that should not be boring. And I was bored for parts of it. And that was, like, the biggest sins to me in this sort of thing, so... You think the premise of this movie shouldn't be born? It's... You bury things in a thing and they don't come back right. There's millions of ways you could do it. The one thing about Pet Cemetery 2, it went, like, totally different than the first one. It did some fun things with it, at least... It, it may not be as great as the first one. It may have its issues, but at least you got a shoot... Like, a scene, shooting, scenery, performance from Clancy Brown. You still have got some, like, little fun, hokey things here and there. The camera kind of works, but there's none of that kind of elevated it nothing was there it just presented as it was like in cinematography nowadays we've gone away from mainstream films from using color or expressionistic like we're going to talk about these five films right and they may have their flaws but like visually in terms of the cinematic language in particular and stuff like the end of the night flyer or the or the mangler or um oh, the other one uh return to same Vlot, they at least did things with the visual language to make me excited about it nothing was like that in this film and it's a horror film. Like, you can be formalistic. You can be expressionistic with it. And this, I did not feel it at all. Well, I don't think I had necessarily a problem with, like, the camera choices per se. I was frustrated by the choice of coloring the film. 
to just desaturate everything, which is just, for me, always kind of feels a little bit like a, uh, like a crutch that, uh, that certain horror films fall into, where it feels like you don't trust the, the material itself to be eerie and suspenseful, so you just kind of, like, suck the color, which in turn kind of winds up sucking, I find, some of the joy of, you like... You feel that was a conscious choice? Just because oh, definitely a conscious about, choice. like, death and whatnot? Yeah, no, I still... I But it, but it's not a choice in the first in the uh, first Pet Cemetery, though no. I, the no, film coloring is much different. I mean, we, that's a completely different animal, yeah. I'd say. But what, what, what uh, no, what I'm trying to get is when you do something like that, I find... I find it did. It actually, yeah, you wind up getting the tone of the third act in the first act. So you kind of just have this kind of fe- whole film that feels nihilistic and depressing and kind of kind of unwelcoming, which is... Mm, what am I trying to say here? Which for me, just kind of with the, with the scoring, the way it was all done, just kind of left me with a state of like hopelessness, which I'm fine if you get me there to the end, especially considering like you compare it to a film like Hereditary that has a slow build to that and then and things kind of unravel out. Right. This film felt like it was really trying to like bombard me and there was a lot of plot and it's a lot of plot points that are from the book that are crammed together so you get the dad being haunted by this like forbearing uh, man who's been hit by a truck, the wife's flashbacks being haunted by like her sister and you just kind of for me that all of that kind of wore me out by the end. And maybe this is just a personal taste but I do like I do like where, where the starting point of a film feels different than the end and this felt like by the time we got to there are some good scenes in the, in the third act, I thought, but by the time we got there, I felt kind of, kind of worn out by the movie itself. It's interesting because I feel like I've, everyone's been talking about that Lion King trailer, but it's a modern cultural thing where we've been tearing color out of these films. I haven't been talking about it. So a lot of people, like <laughs> online and film Twitter and friends, I've been talking about a thing. It's like a there's a deliberate choice with kind of let's just take all the imagination and the uniqueness and the color and desaturate it to the point it can be. Like that Lion King trailer just looks absurd. It just looks like there's a drop of any sort of pastoral or any sort of color whatsoever in it. Well, and, that literally, not to like excuse the pun, is a, is a very different animal. Yeah, I know. But like it's a thing where I find with the Curls of Tennessee. And I think a lot of, again, on the same thing with Shadows and Darkness and these sort of things, like this film felt really flat for a lot of it. Like the darks didn't really feel as dark as you wanted to be. The fog didn't even feel as, like it didn't even feel like naturalistic fog. And they love pumping the fog machine in a film like this, but the original Pet Cemetery, things felt tactile. It felt real when they're walking in the forest, when they get to the certain places. They see the dirt and the grime and things like this. With this, I felt like there was a level of separation between me and the film, and I wasn't crazy about it. Yeah. I don't know if I was kind of expecting it to be expressionistic, like you were yeah. kind of expecting there to be like a, a film language happening there. Yeah. Ele- I don't think I was ever expecting it to be elevated, to use that, you know, yeah. cliche phrase, elevated genre, yeah. but... Uh, you know, so I was just sort of taking it as is and yeah. thinking, you know, can you can you entertain me with something that I know so well already? Yeah. And it did, so I, I was like, I, kind of all I really asked for, to yeah. be honest. That's fair. Like, the thing to me is, like, it doesn't have to be a genre. Again, we'll talk about the other films. Like, the end of the Nightfly. Like, Nightfly is not an elevated horror whatsoever. No. But the way it represents stuff in that third act when everything is happening, with it's like, it's almost like a let's Mario Bava film. Let's a conversation yeah, I, about how... Everything was better in the 80s and 90s. Let's not do yeah, that. Yeah, but no, I'm not. But what I'm saying is, like, we've gone away from a tendency to use these tools at our disposal, right? What I mean is, like, in the film, they took the safest option possible. Coverage, coverage, single shot, single shot. Let's get a wide if you want to push in it a couple of times. Let's go, like, let's not to get too crazy with it. And that was, like, the sort of thing with the film. Like, it gave you exactly, like you said, what you wanted. And, yeah, maybe it's a personal preference I would like, in particular horror, because horror is one of the genres you can kind of play with the convention in terms of camera work in terms of like themes in terms of character and things like that and it didn't 
to me, deliver on those things. Like, it's cool when you go to, like, a horror festival. It's one of those things where you can get really experimental with what's being presented to you, right? Yes. And seeing something like this where it's, like, it does none of that, and you're and it's just, like, needlessly edgy and nihilistic and annoying. What's, and what's does, you find, can you define edgy a little bit? Like, you're trying to be so cool with, like, the daughter trying to kill her mother and stabbing her, telling her, oh, you're going to go to hell, and all this sort of stuff and everything. In the end, the implying of, like, they're going to, like, take the kid out of the car and murder him, so they're going to be an undead zombie family. Just, like, things like that, which felt like, oh, it's something out of, like, a neutered-down Rob Zombie film, where it's like, go away, I don't want this anymore. One of those angles, though, I kind of felt um, sort of added to it, and in terms of, like, when you've got the original, when you've got, uh, you've got, when the the little kid dying, right, the little yeah. son, so, Miko, he was great in it, um, yeah. when he's killing people, but he's really just sort of, you know, walking around and stalking yeah. And by, might I say that I thought that they had, may have even got like a time machine and brought Miko Hughes back yeah. for this new remake. How, how the much kid that looked, kid yeah, looked, looked exactly like, yeah. like him. But aside from that, but in the new one with the, the daughter and she's a little older and uh, she's having conversations with the father about you know being dead. I and mean, that was kind of interesting. I thought that one. I did. Yeah. Yeah. No, that too. stuff kind of worked, but it didn't go anywhere with where it wanted. Like it wanted to say these things, but didn't fully develop or seem like. Go to the logical endpoint of those themes or those representations or whatever it wanted to say in terms of those things. It seemed like it wanted to get halfway there but not fully explore those sort of things because another thing would interrupt it. Another thing would everything kind of like those kind of elements almost felt half developed. And then when they give a cursory end line to kind of like completely get rid of those thematic things or say gloss it over or say it's done now, let's move on to the next thing. So Well this is kinda of where I I was surprised by you saying like you think there's a lot of interesting stuff to be mined with the, the material of Pet Cemetery. Because I feel like that book has had like a lasting impact but it's also been really mined culturally yeah. um, from that dynamic where the trope of like uh, of bringing someone back from the dead and them not coming back right or them coming back and just being like a shell of who they were before I feel like that's been like people have lifted that from Pet Cemetery repeatedly it has elements in Game of Thrones and Buffy the Vampire Slayer it's dropped into Sabrina this is where I kind of feel like I didn't feel there was a need necessarily to bring back Pet Cemetery. I don't think the material itself speaks to the time Yeah, uh, think- in any in any way that you go like, oh yeah, that's this is exactly the moment for that? I think the thing is, with the book with Pet Cemetery, the biggest crux, and you did the book report on it, that either films haven't kind of explored. Like, they explored the idea of grief between the family and the children, but there is a big love story and connection, emotional arc between the mother and the father in the book that's kind of not represented in any film. Like, if you're going to do anything with Pet Cemetery, you kind of would have to introduce that element that's kind of forgotten in those two film representations so far. Because most of it's either focused on the kids or the relationship with the parents to the kids, but nothing with the parents themselves. They have those kind of like expository scenes where they, oh, look at our new house, isn't it nice? Let's break it in, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm scared. Like, they have those elements, but nothing deep or philosophical or interesting about their relationship or show the intimate connection between the two of them. If you're going to explore something like Pet Cemetery again, I think that's, like, the avenue you have to explore. I feel like that's something that would be quashed early on by... By the powers of B. Yeah, but considering you know just like, yeah. stuff, stupid stuff like just how to put the trailer. Yeah, you think that, uh, and maybe that's more why it was more streamlined. No, that's exactly like if you're like that's because even Stephen King said that this is the scariest book he's ever written. He said that before, and it's a meditation on grief, and it's a lot of it kind of does deal with the element of like the parents first, and like kind of the reaction to the parent to what's happening to the kids, and that's one of the elements kind of missing out of this book. You, you would like yeah, you need to find somebody who can understand the relationship between the two parents and then understand the grief of the catalyst from outside of them, right? Like, you, in the both films, you, birth, you first establish the cat, then you establish the kids, then you establish the relationship to the kids, to the parents, then the dad, and then very rarely it's ever the mother. Like, in this one, they at least try to give the mother a B-plot or whatever, which was kind of in the original Pet Cemetery, but here was 
a little more fleshed out, but it was still separate from the rest of the family. And I think the next big thing, if you want to take anywhere, would have to be something with the mother and the father, the strong relationship with the two of them, and how it kind of rippled out to the Pet Cemetery. Well, I think that just speaks to how good films like Hereditary and Jordan Peele's latest film, Asar, yeah. for, for being able to establish all that in their in the first half of their stories, and how generous like those production studios are to give their direct, writer-directors the, the freedom to do that. Because this does feel more like a much more like studio package product yeah. than those two films. Yes. Well, that's the amazing part. Like us and this have the same budget, us production value. But us is just a different different film studio. And Jordan. Yeah, Peele but that means that means like Blumhouse just are masters with like finances. Apparently, yeah. like like this actually is a million dollars more expensive than like so. Us I think was twenty. This was twenty one million according to whatever metric. So if that's the case, I'm just amazed. Like yeah, because this film does not look like it's twenty million dollars. I'm no. sorry, and it's no. not like. But yeah, like it's people might be getting paid better for it. Maybe. And the amazing thing is, how the gore yeah. prosthetic effects of that the jogger in this film look worse than the one in '89? You've had like 30 years to perfect this, and it still looks like doesn't look nearly as good. Like it's amazing to me. But like makeup effects, we actually have an advanced technology yeah. in that. It's just right. it's the makeup effects we haven't actually advanced in technology. It's just yeah. The, well, fine, make it just as same. Don't even like make me think. Wow, the original one got like pieces of bone and stuff when he's walking away out of his head in the original one. This one, it just looks flat. A little bit of brain. I'm glad it wasn't CG, man. Yeah, I know. At least the cast were real, you're right. No, sorry, now in my head, I have like 2006 Rob Zombie's Pet Cemetery. And you know in some alternate reality exists the Sherry Moon Zombie as the wife. And it would be primarily on her. You know that's a thing. It's some. <laughs> Somewhere out there. Effects, yeah, in yeah. some like world out there. Wow. Yeah. Because it's the type of thing you would make. Like this family unit, grief, undead animal sort of thing. It's a whole like. Yeah, Devil's Rejects. Family unit. Rob, yeah, that's Rob Zombie's family unit. The Devil Rejects and uh, what's the what was the other one? The sequel has a thousand corpses. All about the family going on the road and all this sort of stuff. Well, the closest family you're referring to would probably be the one in the Halloween remake. Yeah, mm. the second or the first one or oh yeah. Well, if we're gonna dabble into uh, bombing, which I think you made a good point about the 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 marriage and the and building those relationships, which I feel like when you desaturate and you have like an overbearing score that's kind of perpetually ominous, seems like the birthday party. And stuff like that don't really feel joyful. Everything just kind of feels trapped and claustrophobic. So yeah. you're waiting for the well, inevitable you to happen. Know it's coming, yeah. right? You do, but I even even playing into that, I I kind of wish you you set up a little bit of like you you give us that joy as an audience, and then you take it away. Yeah. Um, where I felt like this film, you kind of just feel the gears turning perpetually to to terror. Now I know what I'm but that's just maybe my personal no, it, you're right because they kept setting up like Gabe is going to be the one going to die with all these like little hallmarks in the beginning it's like make sure Gabe doesn't go on the road or something like we're going to laugh at it we're going to live here for like it's what they did these line drops and these little moments where, like they were kind of like teasing you and you obviously knew they were going to like pull the rug under you sort of thing yeah. but like I was I was not like oh Gabe's going down the road we're going to live here as a happy family forever I'm like okay I know what you're doing here, but no. The other bad thing I was going to mention was John Lisko's like terrible sequel bait when he was talking about his wife and hinting what was going to happen to her. And you clearly they were like, if they make money, we're going to make the sequel like in the 60s and 70s or 80s. Uh, prequel, yeah, prequel sequel. The prequel, yeah, where it would just be about yeah John Lisko and what he did with his wife because the kid remember hinted at it where he's like standing over it with his wife's face, and be like, you remember what he did to Norma or whatever? Like yeah. they clearly were like hinting at to make another like whatever like one of those Conjuring universe movies where they would another one based on line with Annabelle or whatever. Well, they wanted to do another version. Like they can tell. make another movie with the cat. I'd watch it. I didn't feel like John Lithgow was phoning it in honestly. I just think the other actors just like. Do you think it would have been better if he was doing a main accent? Sorry. Do you think it would have been better if he was what doing it? What is a main accent? accent? It's a very specific accent. Well, the main accent is the, what was uh, what uh, Fred Gwynn was doing in the original. They clearly should have just gone, dug up Fred Gwynn, put him in the pet cemetery, brought him back, and put him in the film. 
Just yeah, I'm decomposing here. Yeah, like that. That that would have been so much. That been, yeah, that would have been perfect with yeah. his Herman Munster, Herman yeah. Munster background. I don't know. I grew up in a time where, like I think the Gwyn family probably would have a problem with that. Yeah. At what point do we own the likeness to like people anymore? Now it's Disney already does. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. so there you go. So, this, you these, can... these are all topics for another time. Like, we could dive in and get like a legal they expert can put, on. Uh, Bing Crosby in a Dust Devil commercial. I'm just trying to what were the uh, the other? No, they had a, yeah Bing Crosby. They had another one in there. Oh my god, who was this guy captain in the world of tomorrow? It was Lawrence Olivier. Remember they brought him back for that of like the wizard Ted character, right, the hologram. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they did that. You ready for King of the Hell? I am ready for King of the Hell. Okay, so we are breaking down five, and Damoon may have, like, uh, a mystery challenger at the end, but we are going to be breaking down... I, I feel mean, like he has a, a, he's at an advantage, because we don't know what movie he's talking about, so we may not true. have seen it. Oh, you, he, I know he hasn't. Oh, okay. In... So I will, let, me, let me set up... I'll, let me, this is a great chance to set up the rules. So, at this point in time... Stephen King has had 76 adaptations of his work for film and TV. One of those, I think, doesn't count because, uh, well, what is that, a film set that was shot in Canada, about the island? Storm of the Century was not actually adapted from a book. You were right about right. that. It was an original screenplay. So really, it should be 75 adaptations. Yeah. But we're going to be taking on... Did you count Return to Salem's Lot? Because, I mean, that's technically not... And Pet mm. Cemetery is not either. Pet Cemetery 2, sorry. Right. That's a good point, yeah. but... We are count. I will say for this, we are recounting. I would have thought it was more than seventy-six to be honest. We are definitely counting Return to Salem's Lost because it's on my list. Okay. We are going to be discussing. It's on your list. We are breaking down five of these films, and we are going to be knocking them off one by one. Five of the more obscure. We're not necessarily. These are not the worst. Um, we're not trying to fight out the bottom of the barrel. Are they obscure, are, considering some of them actually had theatrical releases? They are, but like when you consider, like when people say, like, "Oh, The Green Mile" or "Stand by oh, Me" yeah. or "Shawshank." Not Ryan, none of these are in the top carrying. ten. Yeah, they're not like, Oscar contenders. Yeah, the big ones are like. Another one, there's Dreamcatcher. I would say we popular than all of these. We were talking about Dreamcatcher previously. Yeah, Dreamcatcher, yeah. I mean, it's got like a Dreamcatcher the cast and more passive end director than any of them. Yeah. But the five films we will be breaking down, and I have seen none of these films, so I it's will be. I will part. be the witness. I know, right? What kind of preparation is that? I've been busting my ass for the last two weeks. The winning film will I will be watching. That is that is I how we are going to begin. Trust me, I'm angry with you. What the hell? Yeah. So the five kind of films are Ramshackle Operation, Return to Salem's Lot, Night Flyer, Thinner, Graveyard Shift, and The Mangler. Right. And The Mystery One. And The Mystery Challenger. <laughs> I'm interested to know what this is. So, as a guest, Jay, I will let you go first to take your pick to knock one off. Uh, sure, I guess. Um, start with the uh, Graveyard Shift, I guess? Why, why would you knock Graveyard Shift off? That's uh, the first written down on my sheet here. Okay, so what are your thoughts? <laughs> I did, like I said, I didn't realize yeah. we were actually doing a debate. I thought we were just talking about the fine films that you picked. So. Okay. I, do, I don't know if I'm going to be... It'll be both. You know, how uh, enthusiastically I'm going to be battling for any of these movies. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Graveyard Shift is kind of weird because it's. Uh, I feel like just from internet and people that I know people actually f are quite fond of it upon revisiting it so I was like hmm, that's funny because that was this is one where I saw in a the theater and I remember not being particularly enthused and I watched it again and I'm like that's not great it's like you know I, I appreciate some things about it I like that um, I, I always be on board with practical effects because we know some of these movies that we're going to be talking about later do not do that um, so, uh, 
I appreciated that. But most of the cast is, is pretty bland. I think Brad Dorf dies way too early. And uh, the guy who plays the foreman is great. And it's like, it, I think he basically went, like, he watched Fred Quinn in Pet Cemetery, and he's like, how can I up this? First of all, I'm going to do, like, a main accent, graveyard shift, you know? And uh, he's pretty much the, the best part of it, along with, you know, the, the creature effects. But I don't really have any particular fondness for it. I mean, it's a rap movie, and I love rap movies. And, uh, yeah, it's... What's that name of that Canadian one? And it's a guy in the apartment building in the 80s. And it's now starting at, like, a retrospect and resurgence. Oh, God, they'll drive me nuts. Was what, just... a Stephen King story? No, no, but it's about, like, guy rats in an apartment building. Oh, it's Mulberry rats... Street. Is it Mulberry Street? That's yeah. what I'm thinking of? It's like rat people, like rats. No, 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 it's a guy going mad in, like, an apartment building. Oh, well, I'm an origin and shot in Montreal with yeah, Peter yeah. Weller, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that movie's is, great. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Someone told me to keep watching it. Yeah, yeah you know, that Robocop great. versus rats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if anyone wanted to watch that Canadian film. Yeah. But, yeah. So can many I, great rat movies. Can I ask really quickly, what's the premise for, uh, for Graveyard? Oh, Graveyard, it just basically, it's like, uh... It's like a paper, uh, like a textile mill or something that they they yeah. have to clean out, and there are rats everywhere in it, mm-hmm. and uh, there's like this weird creature that lives like underground. It's sort of it's it's not really a rat; it's more like a bat, I the think. Rat bat. A rat bat. Um, <laughs> that's killing people, and uh, that's that's pretty much it. Huh? You know, how I was saying in the pet cemetery thing where nothing felt tactile about the film, and like it didn't feel like the dirt and the grime. The one thing I'll give Grey Jarry Shave credit for in the beginning scene is like a oh. guy covered in grime yeah, and no. dirt and sweat and just beating these rats. And it's like a cold open sort of thing. And like you felt like you're in that place. Yeah, no, the production's like, like everybody's all like sweating, <laughs> grimy. It's like, you gotta work overtime. It's like, oh, that sucks. Um, what was it? Like on July 4th weekend, you got, yeah. overtime, you got no vacation? I gotta pick, I'm gonna pick my team. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so actually, funny to give your shift, I would say it's the worst of these films, so we'll knock it off. I'll talk about the bonuses first. To me, it's, to me, it's the worst of these films. Uh, I agree with that. Yeah, I, to me personally, like, it has the weakest directing in all of it. Like, it's very Workman TV director directing, like what I mentioned previously. Single, singles coverage, some establishing shots. The, I really like the creature effects. The only problem is I couldn't see it out of time because everything is really underlit right. until you get to, like, the third act and you get some, like, interesting glimpses of the creature here and there. Like, ooh, that's nice. Yeah, you're right. The performances are fine. The main guy's kind of, like, bland. You've got, like, that Roddy Roddy Piper from They Live vibe, but just, like, worse in it. Like, yeah, way yeah, worse. Yeah, way worse. But the guy who plays, like, the foreman, the evil bastard, he's, like, the best part, yeah. chewing scenery, outside of, like, Brad Dorf. But like you said, he starts, he's, like, right in the beginning of the film, like, wait, is Brad Dorf going to be, like, all of this? But unfortunately, yeah. he's not. He's going to a cool exterminator yeah. with his dog. But yeah. it's like, nope. He slips and his head gets crushed. Kind of like, like a, what? Yeah, kind of like Wayne Knight in their acnophobia, if you remember. He <laughs> wasn't the, no, but it was John Goodman who was the exterminator. Was it John Goodman or was it Wayne Knight? No, it's John Goodman. It's John Goodman. Okay, yeah, John Goodman. But Similar yeah. to that. Yeah. yeah. I feel like he's around longer, though, in, in that movie. I, I think he maybe survived the end of an arachnophobia, but I can't remember. We watched it once, Brendan, but I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, no, it's one of those films where everything is delivered with it where it is. There's no, like, deeper subtext to really anything. The directing doesn't elevate it. The performances don't elevate it. Uh, the creature effects, for the most part, don't elevate it. So it's kind of there. So that's when you're funny. People have said, like, go back and watch it and you'd really like it. I'm like, but what aspect? It feels one of the like space TV movies that they made on a Friday night you would kind of watch. It's hilarious like how what was getting released in theaters in the early 90s then. Was, yeah. It was like when I look back and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like this this has got like direct-to-video written all over it. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
Yeah. Uh, the trailer's great, though. Yeah, you the, tra- the trailer? Yeah, the trailer was good. It was like, with, the, with that 90s voice guy, he's like, early retirement. <laughs> it's like, this, this is... This makes me want to watch the movie. Yeah, and then you, with some movies you wish they were as good as their trailer. The Graveyard Shift is one of those movies. Yeah. So, yeah, there's not much to say about Graveyard Shift. I can't, like, recommend it because there's nothing... Like, every other film on this list I'd recommend it for a certain scene or a certain ridiculousness for it. But this is the only one I can, like, pinpoint and be like, no, I can't say anything with temerity that it, I would acknowledge it as a thing that you should hunt down and seek. So that leaves We can you... exterminate this one. All right. No. That, that leaves you. You've been with... waiting to say that. No, I just came up with it. I swear to God. <laughs> that leaves you with the remaining four of Return to Salem's Lot, Night Flyer, Thinner, and The Mangler. And it is your turn to take a shot at one of these. There's two of them. Two of them. I'm trying to debate in my head. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Two. Let's go with um. Let's go with the Mangler. Okay. The Mangler is interesting. So it's. Directed by Toe Hooper, who yeah. did Texas the Chainsaw Massacre and did their Salem's Lot, and quote-unquote poltergeist, depending on who you talk to. Right. Um, the interesting thing about this film is based on a short novella. And it's obvious they ran out of story, but the most fascinating part about this movie is that the fact that, like... So the movie primarily is about, like, this ma- this um, garment factory mm-hmm. that Robert Ungan plays, and he's been, like... He was, like, horribly mangled by this mangler, this laundry press that's demonically, pre- like, possessed. It's about a haunted machine yeah. in a factory, correct? And it's everyone there is kind of, like... Yeah. Yeah, and so everyone there is kind of wary of this mangler. This, and then it's, someone dies in it, so Ted Levine, Buffalo Bill, and also a monk, comes in to kind of investigate and go down a rabbit hole of possession and things of that nature. Like the grizzled cop. Cop, yeah, who's seen too much sort of thing. So it kind of goes from there. And when I was talking about previously, this actually had some really good inventive camera work. Again, it's Tobe Hooper. Mm-hmm. It's got some good cinematography, and the third act is kind of fun. But the most fascinating part about this film is because there's not enough subtext there. And I've heard previously about... Texas Chainsaw Massacre being um, a critique on capitalism, people have researched it. What's fascinating about this film is that he compares the Garmin factory to Auschwitz, which is insane, but it's there. So, like, first of all, it looks like a concentration camp from the outside. It's got the same, like, gates as Auschwitz. They're dressed like concentration camp prisoners. There's a... The sign. The quote, yeah. Yeah, the sign in the Garmin factory literally says... Uh, labor will set you free, which was written on the gates outside of Auschwitz, work will set you free. So it's not even, like, a stretch to say this. The film is very obvious that it's kind of like what you're sacrificing to yourself because you have to give your part of self to the machine is that you have to give your part of self to capitalism, right? Like, you are part and tied and intertwined with it. It's like a symbiotic, unhealthy, possessive relationship which will consume you. Yeah, that's not a stretch. I mean, you're right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was like, you know, yeah. America is a killing machine kind of thing. Yeah. So, so the Mangler kind of... a stretch. Yeah. So the Mangler is one of those films where the ideas are more interesting than the film itself. And that's why I kind of picked it. There are some really cool... And this is what I mean, like, you're talking about, like, studio streamline stuff. There's some cool things in this movie that wouldn't exist previously. So there's one character who's, like, a photographer, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought he died, but he doesn't. He just goes to, like, retirement home. But, like, he has one sequence where, like, uh, someone, some kid... So the... Sorry, spoiler. So the fridge goes out to the family in the beginning of the film. Kid gets trapped in it and dies and suffocates in it and te- leaving us to go in there. Something else haunted is leaving the factory. The best part is, like, this weird old-timey art deco photographer with a flashbulb taking pictures. Like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And the way the delivery is and the presentation is shot, it's, like, unlike anything you would get nowadays. And when I say, like, there are things I would recommend in a film, that's one of these things. These strange, off-kilter, almost surrealist deliveries and representations. Like, there's... A I feel mo- like a lot of the movie, like all the exchanges between yeah. Levine and his buddy, yeah. like those just where they're hanging out, it's like, 
Was there a script here? No, yeah. Just riffing off each other with these ridiculous comments and, and yeah. It's like oh. So he had like a buddy. I'm not crazy. I'm a cop. Yeah. It's like what? Yeah. So he had the buddy who's like his brother-in-law, even though his sister died, who lives in like a guest house. He's like the demon paranormal expert who keeps convincing him that the mango is demonically possessed and we need to have an exorcist. So it's him. Then the weird like photographer who's also like the weird motician kind of character. Who I thought dies, but doesn't because he comes out in retirement. I was like, really? See, I don't even remember that. Scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, the, I watched it again. Yeah. I don't remember that. Video. No, that's exactly that's the thing. Like, the film is more fascinated in like the stream of consciousness moments and the scenes itself, as opposed to the original, like the story itself in the movie, because it's only based on a short story. Like, how far can you take a movie about a demonic laundry press, right? Probably, I'm gonna guess 25 pages. Yeah. So the entire like, there is some be- like the other thing about a great film. We're talking about set pieces, set design. This, there's a beautiful like set design, more like mortician's office, which kind of looks like. Um, if you ever seen Exorcist 3 with the angels and like it looks kind of like the set pieces in Exorcist 3 kind of like yeah. it's almost surrealistic like soft light going three art deco very symmetrical hallway sort of thing that looked really cool to look at and those sets were great they're sets you don't get anymore and the same thing in the garment factory as well yeah like the machine is the star of the movie oh, like, yeah. they really shot the shit out of that machine and yeah. it looks great yeah it's really like ominous, and they got the great sound design and everything. I think uh, Toby Hooper's son actually was the one who designed it. Really? It. Yeah. So uh, it, it, that's like the best thing in the movie, really. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I agree, but I mean, the camera shots are good, but the, uh, the actual like cutting, I felt like very disjointed. Where it would be like those things where it's like there's a scene with music and it cuts to silence. Yeah, yeah. It's like really off-putting. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's a conscious choice or whether they just mm-hmm. like ah, it's fine. Um, so in that regard, it's fine. And unfortunately. Uh, because all the, the, the actual uh, practical effects of people getting crushed by the machine are fantastic. Yeah. But because of its because it was made later in the 90s, uh, it as much as many uh, Stephen King adaptations do, uh, in the climax, they really rely on some really, really uh, uh, questionable visual effects. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where, like, because the, the, the mangler actually, like, gets up and, like, starts oh chasing gosh. them. Yeah. And it's not good. <laughs> like, speaking of, like, a Stephen King adaptation, one that does it really, like, one of the best practical effects from Stephen King film is in Christine, when the car recompresses oh, yeah, itself. Sure. I, when I was watching that film, I was comparing it to, like, that Christine, when he comes back in the radio and all that. I'm like, I wish it looked more like Christine. Mm-hmm. Because when the car comes back, it's phenomenal to look at. And this one, not so much no. at all. But the third act is interesting. Like you go in the Mangler, it's almost like the shoot press in Star Wars, and they go in and they get like pressed in, and it's like watery grave, and it's almost like the walls are coming in on you, and you don't know what's going to happen, are they going to be saved, yeah. sort of thing. But yeah. Uh, well, I'm actually glad that you, you got something out of it, because I watched it again. Like when we we've talked, when we saw each other a couple yeah. weeks ago, and I was like hyping it up, because my memory of it was... Hazy. I just remember that scene with the like that refrigerator yeah. being like the best fucking thing I'd ever yeah. seen. It's not when I when I watched it again. I'm like, oh shit! I really taught this movie up. They're gonna fucking hate me. It was again, but like, I'm like, great that you were like, oh no, I appreciate this for the fucking like weird ass train wreck that it is. Yeah. No, like again, it's things you won't get in mainstream. Like the film that was theatrical. Like I think it was theatrical. It was. I like yeah, it. yeah. That's what I mean. Like the fact that that guy's having a conversation across like a dead kid's body outside of like this fridge, but everything about it is very dreamlike, like translucent about it. Yeah. You're just like, why? Like, why is it being presented in such a way? And you like it because it's presented like the conversation. Like, it reminds me a lot again of Exorcist Three. You've ever seen it? There's a there's a gritty detective noir. There is an exorcism that needs to be taken place. He has a relationship with like a tech, like his own like detective or moral figure, where everything feels kind of off, and they're bigger existential qualities of the conversation they're kind of having, right? And so it's like it, when I was watching, I was kind of reminded of that film. But I wish the story and the narrative was as strong as the themes he wanted to present. Because the interesting part of the film, speaking of nihilism, spoilers, um, they rescue the woman, the virgin woman who's going to get sacrificed to this machine. 
But then it, when Robert Englund dies and she's like the daughter of his character, he dies. So he thinks the factory will now be utopia, communist, socialist zone. The mangler is gone. It's been destroyed. He comes back to the factory the next day with like a bundle of roses or whatever to see her. And she's now become the Robert Englund character. Meaning that like the symptom is not like the capitalism is not the fault. It's humanity. Like it's not the machines itself that's the problem or the product we've created. There's a fundamental thing wrong with you as long as you're continuing to permeate in this culture. Like there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? Deep. But that's mm. if the film was only as smart as like the thing that was presenting, or like if the narrative was as strong as the film that we're presenting, it would have been good. But it's yeah. not. I mean, there was a pedigree there. You had Toby Hooper yeah. with all the King story with Robert England, who's basically a living cartoon. In oh, wait. you know what I compared him to? Like, you know, Wilbur Ross is like the, the, the he looks like he'd be the person in charge of commerce and labor for Trump's administration. <laughs> like, he looks like Roger Stone. Right. He, and does, he looks like Roger Stone in this film. He dresses like Roger Stone, and he acts like a Trump administration member. <laughs> like, if Trump had needed anybody, he'd get like I don't know, I forget the character's name of the film, but he would grab him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah. That's, yeah, that's the mangler in a nutshell. Some nifty camera shots, like you said, bad editing. Good cinema, like some cinematography, some cool lighting choices in the film. Yeah. In particular in the last act, and everything shot in the garment factory. Like they shoot, and yeah. great set design. Yeah. yeah. No, but even the, the mortuary, that kind of weird, almost symmetrical, yeah. yeah, like, it doesn't look anything well, like a morgue like, police officer. stairs? Yeah. So many stairs? Yeah, it's weird. Again, everything feels surrealistically off. Like, it doesn't feel normal. If they're going, he's going down on the morgue, and he literally goes down, like, three flights of stairs. Like, and, three flights further than you would go down and the, to a basement. The morgue kind of looks like the basement of the us kind of thing, but, in, like, white walls... Like plants and ferns on each side, everything's symmetrical. It doesn't look like a normal, like almost like ivory white with like pillars. It's strange, but you really have to see it to like fully like understand it. But yeah, set design's good. You just wish there was a narrative driving it all forward. Yes. So that knocks us down to a top three of Return to Salem's Lot, Night Flyer, and Thinner. And we're back to Jay Clark to take a swing at uh, to a another swing at movies you don't want to take swings at. I don't know what that means, but. Uh... Basically just to knock them off the list, and you uh, said you weren't prepared for that. Yeah, I uh, go with the one that I pretty much have the least to say about, which is yeah. uh, Return to Salem's Lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny, actually, because I hadn't seen this, and going to watch it, I realized that I actually hadn't seen Salem's Lot either. So I watched that three hours, Same. Salem's Lot, before yeah. watching this. And uh, it's pretty hilarious when you watch them back-to-back -back how different... Cooper and, and Larry Cohen are in their sensibilities because yeah. I mean granted the, the the Salem's Lot was a TV movie so it's very you know mm. workmanlike even though like it would have been creepy as fuck in 1979 yeah. some of that stuff that's in that um, you know so I dug you know the, the the Texas Chainsaw references and and how how a lot of stuff that's in Salem's Lot is in a lot of movies that came out like vampire movies yeah. that came out in the 80s um, but Go, and then going on to like Cohen, which is like just like a Larry Cohen film through and through. Yeah. There's nothing better than than uh, Michael Moriarty and or Larry Cohen. When those two get together, it's like oh shit, there's like fucking mm. what the hell's gonna happen? Um, so uh, just on that level, you enjoy it, and uh, you know what he did with the material of just you know, uh, I guess I I guess the whole entire vibe is kind of like an interview with a vampire kind of vibe. But I yeah. dug the the idea of him him and his son his foul mouth son coming to this town and them being like oh there's somebody who can like you know uh, s uh, transcribe what it means to be a vampire right yeah even though that's kind of kicked by the wayside so I mean there's just Larry Cohen movies are just like bits and pieces of like 
personality that you can latch on to even if the whole doesn't really amount to anything yeah. um so yeah enjoyable it's good that you said that because you talk about like what is the director's like inedible stamp on a film like what makes the director film a film yeah and with him there's almost like an infectious glee with his film like the first two acts i was like whatever and then samuel fuller comes along yeah. and then the third act happens i'm like all right now i'm completely down for absolutely everything that is happening like you're right. The premise of this film is what is kind of great. You have this bio, culture biographer who kind of like his entire life is dictated and animating these kind of cultures that are supposed to be extinct or endangered. So it's good that he goes to a place like this. That was an interesting take on a vampire film. Yeah. The other thing is like his son has like been forced to grow up older because he doesn't have parents around him. But what's like to confront an actual child who's actually 300 years old? Like that contrast is interesting. Like, there's a lot there Tara to work Reed, with. By the way. Terry's first movie role, yeah, is in this movie. And the thing is, like, I swear to God, Interview with a Vampire ripped off her, Kristen Dunst's look off Tara Reid in the film. Because she looks exactly like Kristen Dunst in Interview with a Vampire yes. in the film. And, like, they just looked at it, like, no one will notice. We'll just take the same look. Yeah. Curly hair, same dress, everything. So, yeah. Best part of this film, Samuel Fuller. If people are not watching this film, don't know who Samuel Fuller is. Samuel Fuller, the director of The Naked Kiss, Shock Order, White Dog, all great films. A couple, a big red one, a couple of other ones I'm forgetting. He's yeah, he's a remarkable filmmaker. If you haven't seen any of those films, check him out immediately. I'll always speak more of his role in this movie. Oh, oh, sorry, and his role in this movie. So Samuel Fuller, essentially, in this movie is like the surrogate Van Helsing. Yeah. But, like, not an intense Anthony Hopkins version. He's more like just in an oversized, like, suit jacket with a cigarette and a pistol. Who's just, like, nonchalantly going from house to house, like, ah, oh, like, another vampire. I'm a Nazi hunter. I'm a Nazi killer. <laughs> I gotta get rid of another vampire. And he's like, he's just, like, they're kept to go, like, door to door before sunlight, like, this house to murder. Like, there's no sense of urgency. He's just like, all right, next house. And he just goes in. Yeah, there's, like, a big montage of him just going from house to house murdering people. Murdering vampires. And it's, and it's Samuel Fuller's delivery in it. It's just fantastic. Like, he just... He's not even, like, a full-time actor, but he manages to go in there with such gusto and personality that he just... There's one scene where, like, the main evil vampire and him, like, are gonna, like, have a scene where they're gonna fight off against him and maybe turn him into a vampire. The same one, like, I'm not gonna turn him into a shoots himself in the stomach <laughs> and, like, dies. And you're like, oh, I guess that's the end of Sam Fuller. But in the end, they, they manage to, like, murder practically every vampire. They're, they're running off to a school bus and all the other vampires are running after him melting in the sun. Then Samuel Fuller's driving the bus and he's like, what, you don't think I can fake my own death? I had to do it He, like, drives off with a gunshot wound with, like, Michael Moriarty and his child. And that was, again, the best part of the film. Because if the entire film was just like, yeah, just on the day of Samuel Fuller and wound up being a Nazi hunter, it'd be great. Yeah. So if there's one thing we would recommend this film for, it's just the infectious glee that Larry Cohen kind of puts in his film, which is like in all of his films, like Q or God Told Me yeah. To or It's Alive or My Favorites of Stuff. Like, it's the same kind of thing where he just... You can't help but smile and watch it. And then Sam Fuller just elevate that level of glee. I like this stuff. It just has, yeah. like, random creature effects. <laughs> like, like just, the, the vamp, like, those blue vampires that yeah. are just, like, floating around the trees for yeah. no reason. And uh, my favorite thing, I actually made a gif of it because it's so great, is when they, like, they stake that one vampire. It's sort of like a shot from, like, a medium shot yeah. or further back. And uh, he stakes it, and then there's, like, this, this this puppet that just sort of flies up and goes, ah! Yeah, like, it's remarkably low budget, but it doesn't hinder it, because you know he's, like, making a cheap movie. So the vampire yeah. effects don't look good at all in this movie. I think they shot it back-to-back -back with It's Alive 3, actually. <laughs> really? So it's, like, he's just, he, that guy was just, you know, yeah. making movies to make movies. Yeah, like... Because he loved it. Yeah, and somehow he managed to get Samuel Fuller in this. So if you do watch Return to Salem's Lot... Samuel Fuller. And once he goes in the moment, like, I was cackling hard. Just every time he would open the mouth and say it, something ridiculous. 
and go back. Like, he's just puffing on a cigarette with a pistol, stake in one hand, just walking into, like, a house, stabbing one, next one, climbing up trees, like a 70-year-old man. And that leaves you with two films left. Yeah. Knife, Flyer and Thinner. I know which one this one is. Thinner. Knocking it off. Knocking Thinner off. Uh, so, Thinner. This is the one that I, like, probably the almost the biggest budget of all these films, I want to say. Did you really? I think so. And theatrical, for sure. It was theatrical. It definitely had a bigger budget than Night Flyer. We changed the same a lot. Oh, of course. And Graveyard Shift. I don't think Night, think Night Flyer wasn't theatrical. Yeah. So, so I think you got to start with the premise on this one. Okay, so Thinner. I think you could remake the Thinner just get rid of all the racist stuff. I've already said this multiple times. You remake sure. the Thinner as like an Instagram influencer, hawks one of like their things online, right? Mm-hmm. And kills like a teenager and their family finds a return. But what I would find interesting, like it's a suburban mom who shops at Target, knows nothing about curses or anything. She just wants to live like a safe life empty nest syndrome and now she's forced into the scenario of just getting revenge on this person by going through the extreme length finding like, the secret corridor in her library which so she's never been to PC yeah story actual no the actual story of Sinner is that there is a really obese lawyer who can't lose weight because he's terrible impulse control and his wife keeps convincing him one day his wife and him he's an unscrupulous lawyer also I should mention that he just got one of his clients a mafia hitman which is like one of the best parts in the film off and so he's indebted to the fat lawyer which is important Later in the film. Yeah. So he's getting a blowjob one day from his wife. He runs down the gypsy's wife. And through a series of circumstances, the judge, I think the mayor, and the sheriff of the town. The sheriff also plays um, George's boss on yeah, Seinfeld. Kruger, Kruger on Seinfeld. And he also is in Lord of Illusions, Clive Barker, who plays Nick, the evil uh, illusionist. Have you ever well, seen it? I have, but yeah. not recently enough to remember, to remember that. that. Yeah. Uh, so we reviewed it on the podcast, actually. But oh. yeah, he's in this, in this as well. So all of them managed to conspire together. So the gypsy curses all of them with different versions of curses. One about leprosy and one, I think, like stones. Uh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Scales. Sif- yeah, scales. Yeah, yeah. Lizard guy. Yeah. And the sinner, the fat dude obviously becomes sinner. So no matter what he does, he becomes sinner. And comes against the race against time to stop the curse before he doesn't exist altogether. That's I like that version. Sorry? I like that version. That, that sounds good. Which one? The, the actual one. Not the PC remake. Yeah. Yeah, no, you just have to get rid of, you know, the horrific... No, I like this. This sounds no. great. The horrific gypsy stereotypes, I think, is what he's getting at. Yeah. So, this one clearly like the best production value of all, and that's why I want to say it's the budget. But the best part about this film is the fact that the guy who plays Fat Tony in The Simpsons plays the mafia hitman in this film. He hides his that's voice... That's how you know Joe Mantegna is Fat Tony from... This is the only reason why. Because in the film, he doesn't sound like Fat Tony. But halfway up, he just kind of gives up. And then if you close your eyes... It just sounds like it's Fat Tony murdering a gypsy camp. And to me, that's, like, the funniest thing. Because, like, he's not even trying to hide that accent. It's just him running around with, like, an assault rifle murdering a bunch of gypsies. And at that point, it's probably one of the best moments of the film. Not for, like, reasons in the film itself. Just because it sounds like Fat Tony murdering a bunch of gypsies. That's kind of funny. Sorry? That is kind of Yeah, like, that's all I could think about. The rest of the film is whatever. The directing is okay. The cinematography is pretty good. Um, the, some of the effects are pretty decent. The guy lost a lot of weight. Okay, the jowl part doesn't look very real, but the suit itself isn't too bad. The scales in the bad, and the guy who gets leprosy, Nix, looks pretty good when he does, Mm -hmm. when you wind up seeing him and all that, so all that is fine, and all of that is passable. It's the one that has, like, the clearest and strongest hook of all these films, because it sets a timer for a certain thing to kind of happen, so you're kind of more engaged to what is happening in the plot. And this, like, mafia dude just 
cares way too much about this dude. Like, they just develop a bromance. He's like, he has to help him with one thing, he'll him one favor, but he goes over and out of his way to do these things for this guy, and it's amazing. You don't know if it's like a plot convenience or he's just a really friendly mafia hitman. Yeah. So it's like, wow, he's doing a lot for this dude. Like, a lot. And it's really he nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I watched it again because I hadn't seen it since it came out in theater pretty much. And uh, it's, it's uh, worth mentioning that it, out of all the uh, Stephen King adaptations, this is one of the most purest adaptations really? that's closest to the book. They changed the ending though, right? That was like the big thing? Or no? um, slightly, but I think the, all of the lead up and everything is pretty much the same. I think uh, the Joe Montana character gets killed by the uh, granddaughter, um, Gypsy, but the okay. one that he tortures, she comes back and kills him and he, yeah. and he finds Joe Montana's head in his car. Yeah. Um, I think that's the only thing they left out. I guess he just disappears in the movie, right? He's like, well, that, this, my job is done. I'm, I'm out, out of here. here. Um, just like Pat Tony. <laughs> so I, I appreciated that it was it was very faithful to the book, yeah. and uh, that had a good director, Tom Holland, yeah. and Fright Night, and Fright uh, Night Child's Play, yeah. like very, very solid director. Um, and the, the effects were good, like the effects, like when he's actually down to like you know 120 pounds, yeah. it looks it looks really good. So yeah, when the main guy gets desperate, he's pretty damn solid. The job when he gets like 120 pounds, and he's like. He's all like sunken, Sick, yeah. and there's like like you know he shows his chest. It's all like Christian Bale from the Machinist kind of. Yeah. So uh, that's all really good. Um, so I think it's it's pretty solid. Um, I think uh, it's funny just as an aside because um, apparently uh, Dino Dino Reses had been trying to make that movie for like ten years. Yeah. And he originally wanted to do um, Sam Raimi to do it. Oh, that makes more sense. And he uh, didn't do it, obviously, because I think it would have been around the time of Evil Dead 2. That's how early on his career was. Yeah. But, um, well, Thinner came out in 96. So the only thing between that and this, he did, like, a perfect plan in 98? Simple plan. No, he did, plan. he did a bunch of films, but uh, this would have been, like, around the time of Evil Dead 2, like, 86, no, when they originally did Oh, they want originally When they originally did oh, okay. make it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, uh, that would have been cool, but it's funny because the connection there is that Eventually, uh, Raimi did Drag Me to Hell, which has a similar premise, yeah. where there's like a gypsy curse, yeah. Yeah. almost like given, almost exactly mm -hmm. the same way. So it's kind of funny that things turn around like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty uh, pretty solid, and I think it's one of the more forgotten uh, ones like that one. I think uh, nobody really knows about. I don't. Think. I, the premise itself is what I kind of hooked me because it's, yeah. it's a premise you couldn't get away with that. It's a premise you couldn't get away most. Of, like and it's easily things. explainable too. Yeah. Like, Curse man needs to find his weight back. And yeah, guys, just getting thinner and thinner and thinner. That leaves one film left on the list, and that is Night Flyer. Jake Clark. Oh, it's me. Yeah. That's oh, so one last one left. I forgot. For me. I f well, okay. So is Night. Would you prefer Night Flyer or Thinner over the two? So I said Night Flyer was mine. Would you? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Like I said, I forgot that we were actually doing this one. So I, it's it's about about a year since I've seen it, but I do remember because yeah. uh, I saw it short. Like I was one I never watched. Just because, hey, it's another adaptation, a directed video, and then when uh, Miguel Fair died, um, I was like, oh no, I I want to watch this because there's so much few films that he's actually the lead in, right? Yeah. And uh, it's great. Yeah. So uh, um, I would I would say yeah, that's 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 one that's yeah. that's all one. It's got some. Uh, forget it. I'm blanking on what I would have said, but uh, yeah, it's it's um, really just good to see him front and center because yeah. he's like. Super grizzled, like turning way up, like you know the asshole characters that he played in like RoboCop and stuff. It's like mm -hmm. amped, like some of the I can't remember now what some of his comments of like when he's uh, 
talking to the, his partner or the girl that's yeah. supposed to come up with him. She's like so exasperated. She's just like walking away from the table. Type mm-hmm. of things. Um, and uh, the creature effects. I remember. I wasn't. I remember the design not being all crazy about design just because they kind of blow it because they put it right on the cover boxes mm. that they sometimes feel they need to do. But um, the actual effects, I feel, uh, were pretty solid. And I, 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 I always harp on that because I know just how, how many Stephen King adaptations have been ruined by terrible visual effects yeah. that when they actually go the distance to try and show something practically, I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've probably seen it more recently yeah. than me, so you, you can chime in if you want yeah i think to me actually, i actually really like the creature design and effects in the film like the vampire in the film is unique the closest thing you can kind of think of is like kind of what to, bit... to tell you what it's about oh yeah so <laughs> night time. night flyer is about michael ferrer plays the journalist like a national Enquirer sort of magazine where he's like debunking the mystery so apparently there's someone in obviously northeastern states like new england he's kind of like flying into small airports murdering people and then flying out and Miguel Ferrer, that's a really good premise for a film. Miguel Ferrer is now chasing this entity, or is the entity chasing him? And then Miguel Ferrer, yeah, the night flyer. So Miguel Ferrer writes against this guy to write a story, but then there's a young, upstart, hungry director, uh, also a journalist who's also on the tail, sort of thing who wants to sort of I think it was the director's wife, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah it was like a early movie. It's kind, of a thing, yeah, it's the kind of thing like Kate Morrow would play or something nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Something like Kate Morrow. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so. She it's, looks a bit like Phoebe Cates, actually. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Phoebe Cates. You know, she's married to Kevin Klein for the last like thirty years. Oh, it was yeah. like the twenty-five year age disparity between the two. It's like really, it's like what are those couples you really don't think about? But yeah, they're like a solid relationship. But anyway, back. To, yeah, back to Nightflyer. So Nightflyer, yeah, it's one of those films. It's solid in terms of like it tells the story. Miguel Ferrer's doing kind of a similar things like Ted Levine and the Mangler that's kind of grizzled yeah. and tired of it sort of thing but does it better than Ted Levine like it's always a great yeah like you said yeah. to see him in a lead role where he's really allowed to shine right like this kind of character who will stop at nothing and he has an advantage because he himself is a flyer which who has a small plane so he can fly to the airport so he has advantage over other people which plays in later into the film um, effects are great one thing you wish would be strong in this film was that the young woman uh, would actually have more of a role to play in the film. She's there almost as like a plot device and crush for certain things to kind of happen, so she should have been tied in earlier in the film, so that way her arc would have been better explained or fully developed or fully hashed out. Yeah. So that's one of the biggest knocks on this film. But it is like a tour, like a kind of tour performance for Miguel Ferreira. So Miguel Ferreira kind of goes through these sort of developments, tries to find the Night Flyer, keeps it like that one, oh my God, that one performance with the one guy who's like, ah. Uh, He's at the airport, like describing the things that happened. Everything kind of felt off. Oh, that actor! This is like this character actor who just comes in and kind of describes it. Yeah, something was off that night. I remember the dirt under the plane. Just a great expository scene with like this great character actor who just really drug, who really dragged you into it. So yeah, those moments and the end is like fantastic. Like the end of this film is like they find there's, there's a scene which is so good in a horror movie. So he's in a bathroom staring at a mirror. The vampire is behind him, but doesn't turn around. But he doesn't know what he's looking at because the vampire can't look at the vampire, right? But he can see, he can see the hand on his shoulder, but he can't see anything else. So the vampire is telling him things as like he's trying to like look at him, but can't like look at him. And the vampire causes him to like hallucinate all the dead people that he's murdered. So the last act of the film, spoilers, he goes into like the biggest airport lot, like and it's like 30, 40 dead people. Right. Miguel Ferreira comes in, everyone's dead. This is like the big feeding thing of this vampire he goes to the bathroom try to like gather his senses vampire comes in he did refuses to leave the vampire alone so vampire poison drink his blood and when he does so miguel ferrera starts 
hallucinating that all the dead bodies are coming back and it's on like giallo third act light like fog light horror show where he's like tripping bald and he doesn't know what's going on mm-hmm. and he doesn't know what's happening and yeah and then people think he's the killer in the end because he can fly a plane like i said and the vampire goes away and the young upstart woman writes an article saying that he was the killer and that's how she starts her career but yeah it's it's yeah it's that's one I wish you could remake because there's elements there that you could then, you can make a lot stronger. Like the ma- the kind of mouth thing happens a little later in the film and it should have been a little bit stronger so that way the ending hits a little stronger. And again, like I said, the um, Kate Mara kind of like upstairs detective uh, journalist should have had more to do early on or in, sorry, in the middle of the film. So that way her arc felt a little more fleshed out. But outside of all that, the merging between like the imagery and the story and the narrative and the character worked best in the film than any of the other ones mm-hmm. I've seen. Yes. Oh. This is true. But then my mystery one. So you got a oh, challenger. yeah, right. Well, this, is challenger. this is not a movie. But okay. it is... I already told you this is not a movie. Song. No, no, no. Oh, uh, this is the episode. Yeah. Okay. So Stephen King and there's a... TNT released a, uh, um, a TV show in the mid-2000s called Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which is based on Stephen King's oh, short yeah, films. Yeah. Is Battleground? You're going to say Battleground? Battleground's awesome. Yeah. So if, I'm not going to spoil anything about Battleground because it's best you go into that one like completely oh, yeah. blind. William Hurt, right? Yeah, three things. William Hurt, Brian Henson, who directed Muppet Treasure Island and Muppet Chris Cattell, directed this. Third, it's one hour long, but there's not one line of dialogue in it. Mm. And it's the best, one of the best short film adaptations or short story adaptations of Stephen King that I've seen. Yeah, it's great. Like the first 10 minutes, you're like, Damon, what are you talking about? And then it goes where it's going. And you're like, oh, this is what he's talking about. And that's it. What's it called again? Battlegrounds, Nightmares and Dreamscape. I watched the rest yeah, of the episodes. Dreamscape is the show. It was like six episodes. It, yeah. Battleground is the actual. The first episode of it, yeah. The first episode. I think it was in it was a short story from Night Shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's, the rest of the show is not, like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Just this episode just elevates it. Like. It was the first episode, too. So it was, yeah. Started, you started, started high, really high. Really yeah, got never that got that high. Like, it is something you watch, you're like, wow, okay. And you don't want it to kind of end because you're having so much fun with what's happening in it. And it's unlike any real Stephen King thing you've seen. There is something I could spoil, like, very similar to a movie that was from, like, the mid to late 90s. But you should watch this movie, or this TV episode. That, to me, is, like, the forgotten best Stephen King thing I could think about. Yeah, no, I, I remember really being... Because, I, I mean, I read that story as a kid, so yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> there was actually a... There was a similar... Uh, there was this anthology show, probably would have been early 80s, called Dark Room. Yeah. yeah, and there was a, sh- a story similar to that yeah. in it, and I remember loving that as a kid. Yeah. So this was sort of like the the uh, the pinnacle of that kind of storyline. So, yeah. yeah, good call. I I don't know. No one has really heard of it, and well, I think that show just sort of came away. Only had eight episodes. This I watched the one where like the only other one that kind of was good was the one where they found the water that pacifies people. Do you remember that episode? No. Ron Livingston's in it from Office Space. I'm sure I saw it. Yeah, and what happened is they give everyone the water, like they put it in a volcano, explodes, and everyone in the world can like world peace. But then they found that the water causes early onset dementia, so it only lasts three years and everyone dies. <laughs> no. Yeah, that was the only. I other remember one. the one where it's like, uh, with they're they're in the town where it's like the old timey music. Yeah, and then like Buddy Holly shows up yeah, and Elvis yeah, Presley yeah. and everything is kind of off. Yeah. Like the show itself, it's very mid two thousands after dolls and the shaky camera, the feels of that era. Can you talk about the desaturation and things like that? The only one that doesn't feel like that is the first episode. And William Hurt, we're going all the way back to William Hurt, does a great job in that episode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so should I? Uh, should we call it a tie between Battleground and Knife Flyer? No, for Battleground the, uh, is on top of Taking it. Battleground and knocking Knife The best part is, there's a part of Battleground which would be identical 
to how it would knock the thing off, but you would have to watch Battleground to fully understand it. Does it count, though? Because it's not a feature. I just had the bathroom with adaptations. I never... Oh, I see. Going back on us. Did yeah. I say feature? I don't remember. Uh, movies. <laughs> movies. If we had another 10, 15 minutes and there's Brian Henson, like, director's cut, then we could have count. Yeah. Oh, that's the best. Exactly. It's an hour long and there's no dialogue. It's impressive enough for me to say it's a movie. Okay. It's a movie. Twist my arm. It's very good. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right, so that is everything for this week. Jay, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. No problem. If I can quote the, the foreman from uh, from Graveyard Shift, show's over. <laughs> <laughs> we will be back next... Well, actually, we'll probably be back in just a few days when we'll be, Moon and I will be reviewing Shazam, and we're following it up with a little nostalgia retrospective of Star Kid from 1994, 97? 97. When did, 97. Mary Cotto directed it. No, no. you watch Dr. Giggles, though, right? Yes. With Larry Drake. Oh, yeah, Manicoto. Holly Marie Coons. Yeah. So, if you want to hear Shazam and some, like, very strange 90s nostalgia, I don't think Starkid really had a lot of staying power. No. Uh, please, please uh, join us for that one as well. Thank you again for listening, guys. See you later.